Okay, right. Let's start again. Mm. Pretend none of that ever happened. Okay. Right. Okay. So, Dracula. Dracula. How has Dracula, as a novel or as a character, traditionally been linked to transgressive representations of sexuality and gender? Wait, Sasha, where do we start? Honestly, <laughs> where do we start with this? Like, I can think of a million and ten different things to say, and I'm struggling with with where to begin. Oh yes, it is. It is difficult. Um. Ah, okay. So maybe we could start with we could start by glossing transgression. Actually, when okay. we're talking about transgressive representation of sexuality and gender, we're talking about non heteronormative representations mm-hmm. of sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. And um, when we talk and... about sort of heteronormativity, you know, we are always inevitably also talking about cis normativity, so the idea yep. of, of gender normativity. But frequently, you know, we're we're talking about this from a white Anglophone perspective. We are talking about whiteness and we're usually talking yes. about sort of normative class culture, uh, normative bounds of, you know, what is considered polite society. Uh, it, yes, it, it, there are many, many ways of transgressing what is considered appropriate. And Dracula does it in nearly every way. Yes! <laughs> Dracula just fucks everything up, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, oh God, do, do we start with do we start with character? Do we start with sexuality? Do we well, start with? I would like to start with vampire literature in general. <gasps> Let's so, do that. So, Let's do that. is that something which you have already previously covered when talking about Dracula? Not in a huge amount of detail, to be honest. Okay. We've mostly been focused on Dracula and its adaptations. Okay. Um, well, I think worth again if anyone is interested in in looking at the history of Dracula. Um, which, you know, it's great. It's fascinating. It's amazing. Looking <laughs> it's at so vampire fun. literature uh, in, in the 19th century, I think, is an essential place to look. So if we look at sort of that sort of uh, the, the impetus, the Geneva, the Geneva sort of break in which we have vampire sort of literature forming, the fact that we have it based on Lord Byron yes. uh, as a queer man is inevitably, you know, sort of the point that we start with this figure of the vampire is is the figure of the sort of the outsider, the aristocrat, the the leech who can't be trusted with anybody because he's just gonna he's just gonna have sex with everything. Um, and you know, there's that, a cartoon about this. I'll put on the padlet. There is, there is absolutely a cartoon, but that is the genesis for vampire fiction uh, in in English. And then when we look at Sheridan Le Fanu's Camilla which is, yes. it's so queer. It's so queer. It's all about monstrous women and monstrous women's desire for other women. Uh, and it, as people may or may not know, there is now a web series called Carmilla, which is a lesbian vampire web series, uh, which has become very soap opery and like pro-queer. Okay, um, I did not know that, but now oh, I want yeah. to watch it. Um, so I think it's it's just important to know that the literary, sort of, uh, sort of the literary for mothers and fathers of Dracula are queer. They are canonically queer. Um, So I think it's just important to recognise that uh, where this book comes out of, it it is already sort of moving in a space which is transgressive and threatening, and threatening in a seductively non-normative way. Yes, absolutely. I think I would also add that as a concept, vampirism is and has always been highly sexualized, transgressively mm. sexualized, but highly sexualized. Um, the idea of like the vampire bite as an intimate, penetrative physical act involving mm. the exchange of bodily fluids is obviously inherently sexual in a mm. number of ways. But that the fact that kind of in historically vampire fiction that takes on all these overtones of queerness and threat to the heteronormative status quo Mm. is one of the places that it gets its power from Um, absolutely but i I think i would i would link to that and uh, forgive me sasha i haven't got access to the books right now um this is something i went on a bit of a deep dive in after my undergraduate actually when i still had access to the library um but didn't have to read anything about musicology and instead just sit and read all the books. I sat and read all the books about vampire myths because that was the kind of fun that I thought I was going to have. And it was fun. Um, And there is an interesting point at which certainly in European folklore, there is a switch from vampires as sort of plague carriers and sort of just filthy kind of undead to a sexual threat. 
And the, yes. the, it's a very interesting sort of movement in the 19th century. I was about to say, it happened in the 19th century, it didn't it? It did happen in the 19th century. <laughs> what a big surprise to anyone who has studied the 19th century. Is, yeah, a sort of a threat away from a kind of... Um, yeah, it, the, the vampire suddenly becomes... From from a more sort of generalized threat and a, and a more kind of animalistic, I guess, and, and sort of yeah. ugly and, and an unpleasant threat to suddenly a sexy bad threat. Oh, don't let them in, but also you do want to, don't you? I mean, I think I'm going to read you a little bit from Dracula, uh, just straight off, which is the the thing which is so obvious all the way through in Dracula is the ways in which the vampires not only attack, but that everyone wants them to. And then they fight yes. against themselves. Uh, so it's both Jonathan and Mina. Um, and I think this is so crucial to our understanding of the 19th century. Uh, let me just... Um, aha! Okay, so this is the point. So um, when Jonathan is in the castle and uh, is, is about to be attacked by these three vampire women, um, he writes, I felt in my heart a wicked burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down lest someday it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. Uh, and later on, when he's just about to be bitten and just about to be penetrated uh, by the by the blonde vampire, I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. So, you know, it is very much this is desired. It's it's not, and um, I'm thinking, and then the bit sort of where Mina is forced to drink Dracula's blood, um, you know, she doesn't want to, and yet, and yet, <laughs> there is, uh, where is the point where she, um, oh dear, sorry, I've made notes here, um, and I can't quite find it. Um, but but essentially she becomes into that point where she can't do anything uh, and, and she can't sort of, uh, her will is completely overpowered by Dracula's desire uh, and that she isn't, un, you know, she's unable to, to do anything else. Um, yes. I think um, we might in fact already have looked at this in class as the most famous not blowjob scene in literary history. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so it will be on the slides for... Um, Oh God, I think it was the, the week two of Dracula. So mm -hmm. you, if you are a student of mine who's listening to this, you have access to this this extract. Mm -hmm. Ah, this is it. Uh, it's it's sorry. The mo I love this. Uh, it's Mina is is relating to to what happens when Dracula is feeding upon her, and um, I she, and she she says I was bewildered, and strangely enough, I did not want to hinder him. <laughs> and that is on page 306 of the Penguin uh, Penguin Classics edition, if that's the one that you have. Um, um, but yes. Alas, I have the Norton, but uh, uh, it, it'll be around the same point. Mm -hmm. So you know, this crucial, crucial element, uh, so coming back to that original point, is you know we see the earlier vampire figure as a scourge, but this 19th century vampire as the wanted scourge. And it's, yes. you know, and, and this is where we start seeing the thing that you have to invite a vampire in. You know, they yes. can't cross the threshold. You have to want it. And it's it's delicious. I can't think of a better word for it. <laughs> but I think well, we've come back to Lord Byron again, haven't we? We have. Kind we have of, absolutely. because of Polidori and like <laughs> yes. the, that kind of particular construction of the aristocrat. Like it's also on some level about class, right? Like it this is, is yeah. because it's this is the point where the vampire became an aristocrat. Mm -hmm. Um and also, because of that, became, um, became a focus of all the ways things that we've already discussed, like kind of capitalism and mm -hmm. um, the aristocracy as something drawing the lifeblood from the people of a country and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. There's something about that uh, transition that comes with all this personal sexual loading alongside all the political and cultural stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And it all happened in this 19th century context where at the same time, things like eating disorders and homosexuality were being defined and pathologized and um what, what what's the word when you when you make something into a diagnostic criteria oh i i'm not quite sure that thing I, that process was i happening. would say pathologized. they were being defined yeah at, mm -hmm. which in, in ways that is again yeah. medicalized 
You know, in in one way, and then, again, without trying to get too TMI, but I think it is very important when we talk about things like Dracula or or any element of sort of 19th century eroticism, you also see an enormous growth of pornographic literature in the 19th century, and it's extremely explicit. Um, to yes. the point that, you know, it actually is quite shocking, I think, to read now with our ideas of the Victorians. Uh, and it's very, very gay. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is not, but again, beyond, beyond our ideas, um, while you have the sexological um, sort of uh, emerging ideas of, of sort of inversion as scientific criteria, you still have a pornographic press, which is not heterosexuality doesn't exist here it's about temptation anyone can be tempted into a queer and dangerous sexuality and it's often because of a a sort of um, too much sexual impulse Um, maybe it's that you've been corrupted by other sort of forces very much the idea of being corrupted from eastern orient uh, orientalized ideas or corrupted um, by sort of other forms of excess in terms of drink or drugs or a love even of fine clothes you know the idea that you might become a sex worker because you enjoy the finer things and you are addicted to pleasure and you you know you can't stop yourself um, so I think we have all of those ideas swirling around uh, it's the soup out of which the crouton of Dracula emerges <laughs> yes. if you will so I think also, sorry, I'm thinking about pornography now, and this is not strictly relevant to Dracula, but as you say, it is contextually relevant. Mm. Um, Literally kind of like, even like late 19th century culture didn't necessarily have the profound connection between uh, sexual desire and identity that we have. Mm. So a lot of pornographic writing um, would feature characters having sexual relationships with people of... A number of different genders and it just mm. wasn't a big deal there wasn't the sense as like you were straight and you therefore you're straight mm. porn which is like lots of having sex with lots of women or you were um or, or you were gay and you only i mean there were obviously mm. there was some like pornographic literature that about relations only between kind of uh, one or a limited range of genders but mm. a lot of the time it was kind of a free-for-all and mm. so what dracula comes out of the process out of the cultural process of transitioning from that idea of sexuality where everything is fluid Mm. and to some extent kind of up for like up for grabs and sexuality itself is kind of this shifting transgressive Mm. thing into the 20th century model of defined identities Mm. Dracula happened in the middle of that process and you can to some extent see those cultural forces at work in representations of the vampire and sexuality Mm. and the way in which different characters respond to sexuality as a whole but also like vampiricism in, in general Mm. Um, and I, if anyone would like to do some stretch reading, um, which, you know, hooray, stretch reading. Yes. Um, you know, I think two really good places to look would be one, uh, a book called Fanny and Stella, which is about uh, a huge scandalous, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sorry, I need another cup of coffee. Um, a court case in yes. which uh, two young, well, the Victorians would have said two young men were arrested for impersonating women and working as sex workers. Uh, of course, now we would be a lot more open to the fact that that these people might well have been trans women or, or may have been some other kind of transgressive uh, gender. Um, but the trial itself is absolutely fascinating because the documents that were brought up in support, uh, both sort of support and, and against this argument, were linked to the idea that you know, normal, quote unquote, men could easily be tempted into sodomy. And they could, uh, you know, there there were all kinds of things going on about sort of corruption, and about temptation, and about what it was to sort of stand firm against temptation, not because you wouldn't want to, not because you were innately heterosexual, which wasn't a category that really existed then, but because you would try and be moral and upstanding. Um, So I I think it's a it's a really great book to read. Um, Just it's interesting in general. Um, But it really helps you understand a lot more to do with sort of 19th century ideas of English masculinity in particular. Um, And I think then with that, I would say, again, the Penguin edition, I'm lifting up to the camera, but you can't, we're going to be listening to this. Um, The Penguin edition has as one of its appendix appendices has an interview that uh, Bram Stoker did with Winston Churchill in which Bram Stoker talks about his desire for censorship 
uh, in literature because he believed very strongly that literature could have a corrupting influence, uh, particularly pornographic literature, and that it needed to be kept out of the hands of readers, which is fascinating when he himself has written something which in so many respects reads like soft porn. So, yeah, it's there's a lot going on there. There's so much going on. Um, do we... Okay, so do we want to start by talk, talking about, like, the sexual othering of Dracula and his position as this hypersexualized and racialized other? Or do we want to talk about... Um, the way in which kind of gender identity is represented and the contrast oh. between like Lucy with his aggressive female sexuality and Mina's kind of slightly androgynous qualities mm. and both of their transgressions of appropriate heteronormative gender roles. Like, do we uh, want to start? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you tell me, Sasha. I mean, I think I, I find Dracula a really fascinating figure. So maybe I would start there. Okay, let's start with Dracula. Let's start mm. with Dracula and homoeroticism. Dracula and homoeroticism. We can't talk about Dracula and homoeroticism without talking about Henry Irving and Bram Stoker. So we're going to start there. Let's talk about Henry Irving. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, something which I find really interesting is my original copy of Dracula when I was 12 had a picture of Henry Irving on the front cover. So mine might, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So so does uh, the Norton Critical Edition, which I recommend that all of you get. And uh, Sasha, is that something which you have already talked to? Uh, no, absolutely not. Well. Take okay. it away, CF. Um, well, I, I won't go uh, in sort of too too much detail, but Stoker was, uh, he worked for Henry Irving for a very, very long time. And I don't think it's an unfair thing to say to say that Stoker really planned his life around Irving. Uh, you know, Stoker was married uh, to a woman and, you know, in many respects is a sort of very sort of character sort of caricatured idea of a sort of upstanding Victorian gent. Um, But Henry Irving, who was sort of the most famous actor at that point, uh, was Stoker's absolute fascination. Uh, So Stoker sort of left his life behind um, to go and work for Irving, to to sort of help him run his theatre, to be on hand, to sort of, yeah, to be his right hand man. And the thing which I find so, so exciting is that Stoker, the, the moment at which sort of Stoker's life really changed was seeing Irving in a private gathering doing a recitation. And Stoker sort of described it as, as having a hypnotic crisis, uh, as being sort of put under a hypnotic spell. So again, I'm just looking at my edition of Dracula, which has an introduction. Uh, let me just, sorry, I'm finding the pages. Uh, the introduction is by Morris Hindle, uh, who also did the notes. And this uh, sort of recounts that moment of, um, let's see, of, of uh, sort of hypnotherapy. So if I may read a little bit. So uh, Irving was, was 38 years old by that point. Uh, Stoker was completely obsessed. He'd gone to, to see, you know, all of these performances. Uh, and... Uh, wrote reviews saying how incredible Irving was. So Irving invited Stoker for dinner and Irving sort of uh, gave this recitation of a poem called The Dream of Eugene Aram, uh, which was this melodramatic, uh, sort of completely overwrought uh, piece of Victorian poetry. And I'm reading now Hindle's words. Um, Irving put so much emotion into performing the character of Aram, brought face to face with the inescapable fact of his guilt, that shortly after the poem's climax of horror, he collapsed into his chair, exhausted. Stunned silence followed, then Bram Stoker, as he himself reports, burst out into something like a violent fit of hysterics. According to Lawrence Irving, Henry Irving's grandson, this outcome had been deeply calculated. And this is a quote now. The effect of his recitation upon Stoker was all that Irving had hoped, as welcome as the effects of the murder of Gonzago upon his uncle were to Hamlet. While Stoker was recovering, he went into his room and returned with a photograph of himself, upon which he had inscribed, my dear friend Stoker, God bless you, God bless you, Henry Irving. Uh, and then we have now, at that, and it's at that point that Stoker went off and worked for Irving for the rest of his life. But here now is... Irving, uh, it is Stoker's account of what had happened. Uh, So, uh, again, the author writes, Hindle writes, um, he, as in Stoker, cherished an encounter in which, quote, soul had looked into soul, 
believing from this moment until his dying day that a friendship had been established, again, quote from Stoker, as profound, as close, as lasting as can be between two men. Um, and talking Stoker, talking about his own response, uh, it claims, he's, I was no hysterical subject. I was no green youth. So he really is setting himself up as a manly man who had no choice but to fall into this hypnotic trance which changed the course of his life. Uh, and there are moments all the way through the text of Dracula in which Stoker is um, referencing elements of Irving's life, including um, there is a line that Jonathan Harker uses about, what is it, uh, where he claims that he's quoting from Hamlet, uh, where he's in the castle. Uh, it's morning of 16th of May. Um, right. And there's a quote saying, up till now, I never quite knew what Shakespeare meant when he made Hamlet say, my tablets, quick, my tablets, tis meat that I put it down, etc." Which isn't Shakespeare, that's Henry Irving. That's what Henry Irving very famously inserted into his portrayal of Hamlet because he claimed that he knew Hamlet better than Shakespeare did. So, you know, we have these <laughs> moments all the way through the text which you can almost see as a love letter to Irving. Totally. I would be very tempted to see. Um, So, yes. uh, So I think the Count, the Count is, we can't talk about him without talking about homoeroticism because it is, it is homosocial and homoerotic from, from the very first inception onwards. And again, I'm going to read you the wonderful, wonderful quote that we've talked about a little bit is about, um, Stoker, his idea for Dracula came to him in a dream. And it right. came to him in a moment which then never, ever changed, although it, it's more interesting in the diary entry than it is even in the book. Um, so he had this bad dream uh, in 1890, and he wrote it down. And this is the quote uh, from uh, from Bram Stoker. And this is what he wrote. Young man goes out, sees girls. One tries to kiss him, not on lips, but throat. Old count interferes, rage and fury diabolical, this man belongs to me. I want him. <laughs> and that never changed. And that was the origin of Dracula, was that bad dream that Stoker oh, had, fabulous. which haunted him. Yeah. And I believe when it makes it into the finished text, uh, he says, um, yeah, it, it doesn't include I want him. Yeah, I was about it, to say, I don't yeah. think the I want him actually... Made it into the text, but that is in the diary entry and that's the origin. I think here might be a useful or at least interesting time to introduce the concept of erotic triangles, oh. which is the triangulation of men's homoerotic feelings for one another in homosocial contexts or here in supernatural contexts via the mm. medium of a woman. So kind of that scene is a very good example mm. of homoerotic tension between two men being triangulated by through the presence of the vampire women, mm-hmm. um, who, of course, Stoker wants to kiss him with those red lips. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but then, of course, when the Count comes in uh, and, and he's fierce and blazing, but the Count, never did I imagine such wrath and fury even to the demons of the pit. And he sort of throws the women away. And, and I mean, this is wonderful. In a voice which, though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring around the room as he said, how dare you touch him, any of you? Uh, this man belongs to me. And it's, uh, and it's that moment where the women then say, you yourself never loved and that's their response. You never loved. And they all laugh at the Count. And then the Count turned after looking at my face attentively and said in a soft whisper, yes, I too can love. You yourself can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well, now I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. <laughs> We're just making faces at each other now yeah, because it's... Um, I feel that... <laughs> I mean, what can you say that's not in the text already? I know, which is one of the reasons why Dracula is just so much fun, right? Because mm. it's all there. Mm. Um, and it's all there so self unselfconsciously. Yeah. And you know, the scene where we, we open the door and the Count has Mina feeding upon him, Jonathan is in bed next to them. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Which... Which is something that in the adaptations tend to kind of gloss over because it makes the kind of heterosexualization that tent of that mm-hmm. of, the, of the Jonathan Count relationship 
so much more difficult. But yes, like she, mm-hmm. he's literally physically present, mm-hmm. and that he, that. and that he has been feeding on her for a while as she lies next to her husband in bed. <laughs> so if we're, we're making faces about... here. <laughs> <laughs> so. So many faces. Yes, if you're looking for representations of, tra- of transgressive sexuality, Dracula is just full of them. Mm. And, you know, I think coming back to this idea of the, you know, he's he's very much an orientalised figure. Um, it is it is quite funny, I think, sort of coming back as, a, as an adult, certainly, and reading this book. And from our particular point in time, reading Harker's journal as he travels into Transylvania, it's so fussy. It's so yes. fussy, and the little moments where you know he he wakes up and he needs some water because he ate too much paprika. You know, it's very <laughs> you know the food is strange and the people are strange and they're they're you know they they have crucifixes, which as an Englishman, as an English churchman, I think he describes himself is very wrong. Um, you know, every element. These people are strange and unknowable. Um, he even makes funny comments. I think there's a comment about how the women are clumsy about the waist with the clothes that they're wearing they don't look like english women um and it's not only you know it's this his description of the the count who is you know he has a funny turn of phrase because he's learned english from books and he has hair in the middle of his palms he's got a you know he's got a monstrous physiognomy and his red red lips you know it's all very interesting one of the reasons why I love that so much is because you have um, Jonathan going into this um, profoundly othered landscape full of people who are in some way monstrous or unhuman mm-hmm. meeting the Count. And then the reverse happening is, of course, like the Count brings all that monstrosity mm-hmm. and all that horror back into England. Mm-hmm. If you if you as a reader have been kind of um, following Jonathan's journey through the other and to some extent relating to his sense of what is or isn't appropriate or normal the fact that all of these different threatening things then come and invade your beautiful country and your beautiful mm. english women mm-hmm. they turn up at whitby they turn up at whitby <laughs> and uh, again i'm going to read from morris hindle's introduction because i just think it's so fantastic um where where you know this is really the horror of dracula is it's it's both the reverse of colonialism and also the the queer plague. Um, And Hindle contrasts Frankenstein and Dracula and talks about the the threat of Frankenstein is that there will be a race of monsters, Um, Mm -hmm. but they are apart from humans. You know, Frankenstein does not want to give the creature a wife because he does not want them to to go forward and make further monsters. Um, But, and this is what Hindle says, Whereas the putative race of Frankenstein monsters is merely an external threat to humanity, the menace of the vampire is that, and this is partly what makes Dracula such a unique horror masterpiece, it works on us from the inside, taking over our bodies, infecting our deepest desires with the lust for power and domination. For Dracula's posse of protectors of Christian civilization, the price of failing to destroy the vampire is not merely the threat of more and more vengeful monsters, the dread is that they themselves will be turned into bloodthirsty vampires. They will no longer be English or American or, again, sort of Western European. They will be this other and they will no longer be men and women and heteronormative in a way that we would understand it. They will become desirous and unruly and, yeah, a bit too sexy to be allowed, really. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And it is that thing of of the fear of the other being so much more powerful and dangerous if it could be the other within right if you could be made if you could be made to be afraid of your own impulses and emotions and your own potential impulses and emotions that's in some sense it's where the horror comes from right the horror is the the one that you carry with you Mm. and this is what many many commentators have said you know the possibility with stoker who outwardly lived such a straight-laced life um you know, was he holding this horror within himself? His, you know, was he holding a deep desire within himself that could not find expression and needed to be feared and controlled? And did that explode into his writing of Dracula? I mean, I would argue, yes, I think, you know, as much as as we're, you know, we're looking at historical documentation, you know, it's very interesting looking at Stoker that he has a real interest in controlling the uncontrollable and trying to press down... Absolutely. The monstrous desire. And 
not just kind of press it down but regulate it like the mm. imposition of like an external structure of like morality or religion or whatever mm. and yet somehow it's still that it the, the transgression kind of leaks through mm. underneath mm. um like Absolutely. in some way in some ways it's profoundly anxious novel hugely which i think is one of the reasons why um it, it is you know suddenly it's difficult i i read it as an adult and I find it very campy. I find it a very yes. fun novel to read. I do remember reading it as an adolescent and finding it profoundly frightening, um, you know, not having any knowledge of these horror tropes. You know, Harker is so anxious. I mean, he's in the castle. It is very, very frightening. And I think that is, uh, you know, it's a really, it's, it's a very interesting place to be taken to as a reader. Yes. Um, and I think it was fair to say that Dra- the Dracula is where some of those tropes either start or are shaped, mm, right? Like this has influenced culture in this profound and intimate way, mm-hmm. um, particularly culture around horror, the other, and sexuality, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, can we talk a little bit about what it does with gender as well mm-hmm. and yes. the ways in which kind of characters transgress their gender, their appropriate gender roles? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Dracula. something... I had a nice, yes, I had a nice quote, a nice quote here. I mean, one, I think, you know, if we go back to that, that scene with Harker and the three vampire women, you know, what he is waiting for is to be penetrated by a woman. You know, the yes. vampire women are dominant. They are, you know, there is, you know, high, high femme energy from our blonde <laughs> vampire, even as she, she leans voluptuously over him. She is in a powerful position and she is the one who will penetrate him. Um, which I think is, you know, all the way through is hugely important. But then I just love um, the undead Lucy. And I think that is, um, you know, the quote I've got here, she seemed like a nightmare of Lucy as she lay there, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained voluptuous mouth, which it made one shudder to see, the whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. You know, so we li- literally have the vampire disease turning Lucy from from a virginal uh, woman, although one with some frightening desires, which she hints at, and it well, now un- it unleashes her um, as this beast of carnality. And so, from that, you get both um, the idea that sexuality is this kind of threatening disease, but also the fact that it is something. By which all like all women as a class, even English women, are inherently threatened. That they're, they're he's creating an a direct link between Lucy as a character who might quite like to marry more than one man. It's difficult <laughs> to make decisions. To Lucy as a monstrous rage beast who can only be quelled by this profoundly like penetrative and mm-hmm. sexual. Um, it has been described as a gang rape. It's not quite a gang rape but it is a group of men penetrating a woman's chest with a, with a wooden object well I, I think even more than that it's one man penetrating a woman as the other men oh, stand yes. round and tell him what to do and provide That's... him with absolution afterwards and before so i find that even more interesting actually yes no, no no talk about that um well again you know it's van helsing tells arthur what to do and instructs him and it's brave lad a moment's courage and it is done says Van Helsing to Arthur and Arthur literally says tell me what I am to do and Helsing tells him exactly what he should do and Helsing reads um is reading out prayers while Arthur does this to try and bring her her sort of uh you know Van, was it? Van Helsing opened his missile and began to read and Quincy and it's Seward writing this and I followed as well as we could so we have these three men praying and then Arthur um, Arthur placed the point over the heart, and as I looked, I could see its dint in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might. The thing in the coffin writhed, and a hideous blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth about this description. champed together till the lips were cut, and the mouth was smeared with crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. He looked like a figure of Thor... Hold that in mind, because we have the figure of Thor emerging at this point in terms of Aryan uh, sort of literature and the idea of the the white sort of race. So he looks like a a figure of Thor 
back to Stoker as his untrembling arm rose and fell. Rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set and a high duty seemed to shine through it. The sight of it gave us courage so that our voices seemed to ring through the little vault. <laughs> yep, <laughs> doing a thumbs up there. Yeah. So, what do we make of this description? <laughs> I'm really sorry, I feel like we ought to anatomise it and it, it's difficult because in some ways it's so blatant. It is. I mean, one of the things which I find, you know, it's almost inevitable not to think of when we're looking at, at this point in time is um, sort of looking at sexological considerations in which women were seen as becoming hysterical um, and sort of driven to madness by masturbation or by non-normative sexual practices, which could be cured through sort of normative heterosexual um, sort of conduct within marriage. Um, we have sort of later Freudian ideas of the clitoral orgasm as an undeveloped and unruly stage, as opposed to a vaginal orgasm, which is a woman sort of being in her proper social and gendered place. Um, but we see that earlier in sort of Victorian sexological literature. Bear in mind that Freud was a sexologist uh, as well as sort of then the founding, founding, the founding fathers of psychoanalysis. Um, and while he was disbarred, there was a horrific Victorian doctor who used to perform um, clitoral removal on women yes. who were brought into him as being unruly and in need of, of constraint. Um, so I think it's very hard not to read that scene, certainly from my perspective, as kind of uh, the normative force of heterosexual penetration at the hands of a man uh, yes. against sort of her. Oh. It's the patriarchy and it's all the institutions yeah. which connected to the patriarchy, like uh, science and religion united to quell mm. the rebellious and sexualized woman. Yes, absolutely. In, in a way that is described as profoundly sexual. Like that's Hugely absolutely... Sexual. An, an orgasmic description and that in itself is because you know mm -hmm. and he's one, allowed to kiss her after he does it yes absolutely because once he, she's been purified right. by being aggressively penetrated by the patriarchy mm -hmm. then she's appropriate so it's fine mm, whereas before he's not allowed to kiss her and there there is the warning that if he kissed her he would he would be sort of falling in with a vampire Yes, he would also be, he would be vulnerable to being distracted Polluted. by her vampiric sexual power, whereas mm. after she's been... And it writes itself. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. Um, shall we maybe go on to talk about, I mean, is there anything about Dracula itself that we haven't covered? Uh, in, in terms of the novel or in terms of the character? Well, this thing, I was about to say, maybe we should talk about how adaptations deal with this, because obviously there is a lot here, yes, and there yeah, is a lot of kind of ambiguity and tension and um, also obscenity mm. in the novel that never kind of makes it into the adaptations no. because it's dangerous and difficult and threatening. And um, the, the, actually, the what I would recommend people to watch if if they wanted to get a really smart take on this, is not so much an adaptation of Dracula itself as both the film and the TV series of what we do in the shadows, because yes! that is oh a tremendously God. intelligent and really funny dealing with, with not just like the figure of Dracula, but with sort of the, the afterlife, if we're allowed to be that punny of Dracula and it, sort of the, the impact of Dracula on popular ideas of vampirism and sexuality. Um, so what we do in the shadows is it's hilarious and it's hilarious in many respects because all of that um, forbidden sort of seeping through sexuality is overt and normalised and then sort of yes. twisted and just made really hilarious. Um, so I'm thinking of the orgy episode of the series of what we do in the shadows, uh, where everything that is forbidden and oh, oh, it's so bad, it's so bad and sexy is suddenly like oh god, we're planning an orgy. <laughs> the vampire council, you have to have your orgy, and you know if it's not sexy enough, you're not going to be a cool vampire. And yeah, it's great. It's absolutely great. I will see if I can find this on Box of Broadcast so I can upload it to the Padlet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know they had the I know they had the trial episode because I used that for my. Um 
for my vampire vampire studies MA. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they have the audio episode, but if they do, I will upload it to the Padlet so that people mm-hmm. can watch it. But I think you know it's. Uh, yeah, I, I would really recommend. Um, the, the Hammer Horror films are great to watch as well. Uh, we the have Brides, watched some of those in class, yeah, actually. Yeah, The Brides of Dracula. Um, but I, yes, I, I find it deeply, deeply amusing. <laughs> so if we're talking, if we're thinking about the, the, the ways in which kind of uh, Dracula and Dracula's sexuality is represented as transgressive, mm-hmm. um, there are a number of ways in which adaptations have dealt with this mm-hmm. um one of which is monstrosity is representing what in stoker's novel is ambiguous and riven with this tension between kind of desire and appropriateness you know jonathan's desire to, for penetration and yet also mm. his resistance and his kind of the charismatic um, relationship that he develops with the count that kind mm. of attraction Sometimes in adaptations, it's played up as straight, uh, straight up monstrous. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking uh, specifically of Nosferatu here. Yeah, absolutely. Which... And yeah, I, I adore Nosferatu, but there is nothing sexy about that film. It's just straight up horror. Um, yeah. Which is, it's... you know, it's an amazing film. Um, but yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's straight up horror, and it's also it's profoundly othering in a fairly anti-Semitic way. Uh, the character, mm-hmm. uh, the ways in which kind of uh, Nosferatu is physically is physically represented mm. um, he both um, has numbers of physical characteristics that were traditionally in medieval and early modern Europe associated with Judaism mm-hmm. um, but he also is do you remember that you remember that shot when they're on the boat mm-hmm. and then the rats yes. and it's like the 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 Nazi film that was made with the Jew of mm-hmm. the Jews and the rats kind of the the there is a time-honoured, centuries-old mm. cultural tradition of associating Jews with rats, basically, mm. which Nosferatu also kind of plays into. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, obviously it's uh, racist and anti-Semitic and monstrous mm. and horrible, but what that also manages to do is completely, it undermines the appeal of transgressive mm. sexuality yes. in Dracula. Yeah, it's not, it's not sexually appealing, it's threatening. It's mm. physically and to some extent threat, sexually threatening because of like, you know, the, the trope of the invasion mm. and kind of like the rising out of the, co- the, it's threatening and invasive, but it's not sexually appealing or transgressive mm. in the same way. It, it's very interesting that it uses disgust as a way of causing us to fear the vampire. Uh, yes. And I, I would say, I don't think that Dracula is a disgusting book. We don't have there is there is fear, but it's not based in a physical revulsion. It's based in a physical desire instead, which Nosferatu completely reverses. Yes, and I, I thought also I would argue that uh, it's ba- Dracula is based in in the reader's ambiguous response and the reader's uncertainty about kind of what what to do with kind of these images. Mm. And Nosferatu takes that uncertainty away from it in ways mm. that may be cathartic. Like mm. you know, you can it's absolutely possible to represent Nosferatu as cathartic in its representation of, of horror and monstrosity mm-hmm. but it doesn't do the same fear of the enemy within thing mm-hmm. at all yeah yeah um, absolutely it's completely externalized and talking of uh, enemies within and ex- externalizing things there's also the heterosexualization of dracula mm-hmm. of which um we we watched in a seminar a few weeks ago like the introduction to bram stoker's dracula the francis ford coppola <laughs> Oh, you can't see me hiding my face in my hands, but that film is so awful. I, I like I have a soft spot for it because I was a teenage goth in the 90s and I associate it with that. Mm. But it is awful in so many ways. And one of the ways in which it is, you know, uh, not necessarily the best <laughs> adaptation of this uh, like ambiguous uh, threatening powerful book is the way in which it relentlessly heterosexualizes everything all mm-hmm. the time yep. and it's all about a heterosexual love story mm-hmm. um and like the the playing of the scene where dracula where um mina drinks from dracula is kind of taking me away from all this death despite mm-hmm. the fact that it launched a thousand memes um <laughs> is such a it's such a denaturing of what that scene is in the original book mm. um, because it takes out like the ambiguity and 
the sexuality and also like the kind of triangulation of Jonathan mm. being physically there. Absolutely. And turns it into this kind of love story between these two very, very beautiful people who are tragically separated mm-hmm. by the fact that one of them is a vampire, but nevertheless, they're both dressed very well. <laughs> <laughs> And that's just not... And that is another way of dealing with the things about Dracula that are sexual. You make them heteronormative. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You cut off the homoerotics of it. You cut off the the tension and mm. the uh, conf- the internal conflict that the characters have in terms mm. of their response to Dracula as a character or f- for the women. Mm-hmm. And you turn it into a, like a heterosexual love story. Mm-hmm. Which, which I- is mad. Yeah, it, well, I, I just don't think it works. Personally, you know, I, I really don't, I don't see it as something that then holds. I don't feel it has any dramatic tension. Although all the people who love, does. all the people who love Twilight would disagree with me. Although again, <laughs> if we're going to talk about Twilight, we'd have to talk about triangulate relationships. So, you know, maybe there is a little hint of that still there. Well, I think in some ways I find it really hard to watch it now as anything other than a massively campy caricature. Mm-hmm. And I, I like I, I enjoy that, like mm-hmm. the way like Lucy, the way which kind of Lucy's um, vampire self, they so carefully kind of edit out anything that there's so much kind of heteronormative anxiety around it that I actually find it quite pleasing. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> the theatricality of it all is so marked and so aggressively stamped out. Mm-hmm. And I find that, you know, I, I find that really interesting. I find that in some way testament to the transgressive power of Dracula in the original. The fact mm. that kind of it's only readily assimilable. Um, I was going to say readily assimilable within the society of the early 1990s. But I think the same is absolutely true of, for example, the the recent BBC Dracula, where... Which I um, much the, admit I have not seen. So, oh, you know, like, I, I, I cannot I speak to... Bit, I watched, yeah, I can't speak of it with any knowledge really either because i watched a bit of the first one and was just like no mm-hmm. but um stephen moffat did give this very interesting interview in which he talks about how dracula is bi homicidal rather than bisexual he's so anxious to kind of mm-hmm. heterosexualize yeah. the this aggressively um and transgressively sexually mm-hmm. f- threatening figure that he's makes this nonsensical statement about the fact that well obviously you know dracula has always been like not a sexual figure there's nothing sexual about dracula and you're like dude read the fucking book. <laughs> yeah, oh my god well he's not very good at reading the books and actually going with the books so you know yes i think that's i think it's fair to say that um, stephen moff is not very good at uh, reading books as a, a blanket statement but uh, mm. yeah that that tendency to deal with the transgressive sexuality in Dracula and the destabilisation mm. of the categories, even mm. of categories like homo- of heterosexuality and homosexuality, because it was written in a time when those did not yep. have anything like the cultural force that they have today where they existed at all, mm-hmm. by retroactively imposing heteronormative categories on it and yeah. emphatically denying the queer potential of the original text. Like, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I find, find it funny. funny. Yeah. But I don't find it a convincing adaptation. No. Oh, God, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's I interesting, think... you know, I, looking at something like Interview with a Vampire. Oh, yes. Um, you know, for all that it is a ridiculous film, it is a ridiculous it's film ridiculous. that holds so much of the homoeroticism of Dracula itself. Um, yes. I'm thinking particularly there's a scene very early in the film where Louis and Lestat are feeding on the same woman. And again, yes. that very clear triangulate sort of queerness which i think you know it, it's it's so much more in the tradition of dracula than any other dracula sort of adaptation that i've seen um, yes mm-hmm. absolutely i think the way the place in which the vampire now has in culture is something that i obviously want to talk about for 20 minutes and can't <laughs> but i think it's that it's very interesting how successive um takes on the vampire myth even those who which we pick up a lot of the things Anne Rice has. I'm thinking particularly of like of um, Discovery of Witches and the Discovery of Witches series, mm-hmm. which um, sets the seen. vampire. Oh, Sorry. I mean, they're actually they're they're pretty good if you like fantasy trash, but they're very very not queer. And like mm. uh, for the MA course I did about this, if you are a student of mine listening to this and you're interested in, I will dig this out for you. Um, I compared the intro- your, the introduction of the journalist to 
Louis in Interview mm-hmm. with a Vampire to the introduction of t- um, the female character to the male vampire character in Discovery Witches. And they're almost identical. They're the same tropes. Mm. But this later 2010 novel kind of takes the queerness out. Mm. All you're left with is this, the vampire is this beautiful heteronormative figure without who is sexual but who is, is sexualized in an explicitly mm. heteronormative way which i would say you know if, if you feel like doing it compare and contrast with true blood which is one of the <gasps> queerest oh. tv series which has been yes. seen so tv series much more than the books actually mm. i mean the books are quite the books I, I find kind of i've read them all of them um actually i found them quite disappointing but the tv mm. series is such a joy yeah in terms of how it represents and shout out to Anna Paquin as an openly bi actor. And, yes, yeah. absolutely. And Evan Rachel Wood also. Yes. Oh, actually, oh God, yes. And they're so good. Mm-hmm. Like They're amazing. We should maybe talk about an episode of True Blood that I can stick on the padlet, but we probably shouldn't do it like, right now. Yeah. Sorry, I'm keeping um, an eye on the time and just realising how long we're going for as well. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, okay. Um, can we think of... So, the... The, the overarching question, which I think I would like to end this discussion of what adaptations do with Dracula, mm-hmm. what adaptations can we think of that actually play into or address, even address directly the queer and transgressive aspects of sexuality in the original Dracula novel? Are these adaptations of Dracula or adaptations of vampire mythos in general? I was thinking adaptations of Dracula, but I'm actually finding it quite difficult to think I of any. So we yeah. can widen it to adaptations of the vampire mythos in general, and then talk about why it's so difficult to bring those qualities to adaptations of Dracula specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally can't think of an adaptation of Dracula that that does justice um, to the sort of deviance of the sexuality and the transgressive nature of the sexuality. Um, I find Jewel Gomez's Gilda stories very interesting um, yeah. as a sort of black, queer, um, feminist take of the vampire as an idea of liberation. And turning that from, oh no, oh no, unruly women to, yes, yes, unruly women. You know, fuck this patriarchal nonsense. Unruly women. Uh, and and that being a vampire is a force of liberation. Um, so I think that would be my favourite point of, of someone wanting to move um, from... Uh, from the dangerous subversion to subversion is liberation. That that would be sort of a point. Um, but it is interesting that's never been optioned. That's never been filmed or, you know, it's not widely popular. Um, what about you? What would you think? I would probably, I would, I would think of Octavia Butler's Fledgling, which is interestingly mm-hmm. also written by a woman of colour mm-hmm. um, and featuring a, a central uh, vampire character who, who is like, who is a child? Well, she appears to be a child of colour. She's actually like fifty-three, but mm. um, she appears to be an eleven or twelve-year-old girl, which does a number of pretty uncomfortable and difficult things mm. around transgressive sexuality. Um, the vampire character has a, a number of uh, symbiotic relationships with with um, which are sometimes sexual, sometimes not, with adults who mm. she regards as her symbionts. And um, there is a um, and there's kind of the, the protocols around establishing those relationships are consent in those relationships is actually kind of quite well articulated but at the same time there's this really um uncomfortable scene early on where she appears to be a 12 year old girl um a 12 year old child of color um and an adult white man um demonstrates and acts on the desire to have sex with her basically Mm. um it's like it's all it's very self-consciously done but i would say that actually something like that that is playing with ideas that are currently taboo it's not so much the fact that she has sex with that the central character has sex with and exchanges blood with men and women it's the fact that they're also it also addresses things that are still cultural taboos Mm -hmm. like you know for very good reason i'm not suggesting they shouldn't be cultural taboos but there is that same kind of sense of transgression and discomfort that I would imagine that some Victorian readers at least had for Dracula Mm -hmm. in Octavia Butler's Fledgling. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, exciting stuff. We should probably stop now. Okay. (laughs) um, And maybe have some lunch. I think so. I think that would be a good idea. 